was, it meant something other than just I wanted to be comfortable and I like the outfit. You, who remembers a time when wearing pants to church for ladies was a bit of a cultural no-no? Anybody remember that? Yes. I mean, can you think of such a thing? What if we reintroduce that, ladies? Would we have a revolt on our hands? How would that go down? There's all kinds of things like that, all kinds of lists of do's and don'ts, of cultural mores and norms and taboos, even things that would go so far as to indicate to a person who's observing such an action, such an item of dress, whatever it might be, that it would inform us to look upon that person and draw particular conclusions just based upon that, that surface observation, what they're wearing. I mean, even facial hair, I mean, used to be a problem, I think, in some cultures. And, you know, it's like, that's, uh, that's unbiblical, man. What's wrong with you? Um, all kinds of things like that that would, that would lend themselves toward criticism, toward judgmentalism, toward feelings of being inferior, At minimum, we would look at people who didn't sort of live up to whatever those cultural standards might be in a particular religious setting. At minimum, we might look upon them and just see them as part of the untaught. So maybe maybe the fact that uh, a, a lady decides to show up to church wearing pants as opposed to a dress, uh, we might look upon that lady and say, she just needs to be discipled. She needs the gospel, and then we'll just disciple her into appropriate wearing of dresses on Sunday because everybody knows that's how you get to heaven. Of course, knowing the nature of our sinful hearts, it can also go to further lengths where we draw conclusions about people. Those conclusions become fixed in our minds, and that becomes the lens through which we look upon them going forward in some derisive way, some judgmental way. There are all kinds of issues that we have to operate in in, 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 the, in the life of the church, but just in life in general, that really don't, we don't have specific or explicit biblical direction to guide us. Do this, don't do that. Wear this, don't wear that. Say this, don't say that. Listen to this, don't listen to that. We're confronted with these kinds of issues all the time. And the, the further complication of it all is that not everybody lands in the same place. And yet we're called to fellowship in the life of the body of Christ. What happens, moms and dads, parents, when your particular proclivities for parenting your children, and that manifests itself in certain limitations of certain types of media conflicts with another fellow believing family who you thought all this time were true Christians, but then you find out that, no, they actually you know, watch this show or allow their kids to watch this show or whatever, and you start to think, man, I don't even know if they're believers anymore. <laughs> Being a little facetious, but you get the point, right? We, we, can, we can run into these kinds of things, and it's like, whoa, what do we do with that? How, how do we navigate that? There are things that are even much more significant than that than we might have to grapple with, that may be derived from background and cultural backgrounds and histories, 
family histories that actually can be sources of real deep provocation amongst other people. In, in this particular region of the country, as compared to, say, other regions of the country or certainly other places around the world, um, if you were to see me and my family out for a meal one day and, you know, you saw three bottles of wine at the table and, you know, a big margarita glass and whatever, you might have a problem with that in your conscience. You might look at that and say, what is going on? But in other parts of the world, in other cultures, I could go to, to a pastoral conference in Germany, for example, and be invited to sample the finest German beers at the local pub as the after party of the conference with the other pastors. And Spurgeon smoked a cigar, just so you know. <laughs> so we have these things, these 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 preference issues, these what you might call gray areas that sort of land us into this place of what are the limits or the extent of Christian liberty? What's okay and what's not okay? Particularly when we don't have explicit biblical instruction to help us know, do that, don't do that. And there are a lot of those kinds of things in the life of the church that we have to navigate. We're coming to this next section, and really this next chapter in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and really carrying all the way through the first verse of chapter 11, in one way or another, this broad and sweeping matter of Christian liberty and how we navigate preferences and gray areas in the life of the church and maintain solid, genuine spiritual fellowship, and how we avoid unnecessary provocation of one another, and how we encourage faithfulness and fruitfulness amongst our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. How do we do that? What does that look like? It's this long section that has a, quite a bit of standalone material that we'll have to deal with as we walk through it. But this long section in these few chapters that we're, we're moving forward into now really deal with this broad and sweeping matter in some pretty compelling and interesting and definitely challenging kinds of ways. Chapter 8, in particular, begins introducing the lay of the land in Corinth and the issue that was on the table that was creating no shortage of difficulty and dissension and questions and confusion amongst the believers in Corinth. And it's a matter that will not be familiar to us in the sense of our common experience today. But the implications of it, or as we kind of unpack what's really going on here, certainly will be able to draw direct application to any number of circumstances and situations and behaviors and preferences and practices that we experience in our day and time. And of course, you've already glanced at it, I'm sure you see it's this matter of food offered to idols, food sacrificed to idols. I mean, you read 
the first part of verse 1 in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, and he says, now concerning food offered to idols, and you might have a, an inclination to say, okay, next, like, let me get to another section because this doesn't apply to me. And of course, I don't think that that would be the attitude of you guys in general, but I'm just saying that's kind of our tendency when we come across those kinds of things. It's like, what do I do with that? I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that's a big deal in Woodstock right now. Is it? Am I, I mean, I'm, I'm a little out of the loop, I, I admit. I mean, I don't, but I don't think it is. But this is, this is a really potent section of Scripture here that really provides tremendous insight that will guide us. It provides principles that will inform how we are to navigate these differences, these different preferences, these gray areas, and exercise Christian freedom and Christian liberty in a way that is in accordance with our salvation and our identity in Christ. We're, we're, we're at a, a day and time right now where we're on the precipice of the midterm elections in our country. And there's no shortage of talk right now about matters pertaining to freedom or to liberty. Some politicians are majoring on this threat to what is fundamental to our understanding of our system of government and freedom, and that is that democracy is on the ballot. Our democracy is under attack. Be warned, be cautioned. It's an alarming time. Others are amped up significantly over what is seen to be constraints, significant limitations, growing limitations, if you will, on things like free speech. The freedom to express your ideas, to offer up alternative viewpoints without being censored. Of course, a lot of this centers on censorship on our dominant technology platforms, social media platforms, of course. But everyone is claiming in one way or another, whether they're honest brokers or not, they're claiming to be crusaders for freedom. They're they're strong advocates for liberty. And of course, if you're like me, the natural inclination is to say, Yes, I want liberty. I I think freedom is good. I think we should fight for it. I think this country was founded on it. I mean, I I can get into that that mode of thinking and say, yes, absolutely. A little uh, side note, this is not in my notes, but I don't trust any of them anyway, so I don't know what's going to be on offer once everything's done. I mean, I have a hard time trusting political systems right now. I'm not excessively cynical and I'm not wanting to promote anarchy and taking over the government or revolution. I'm just saying I have a hard time trusting what's going on right now. But nevertheless, the proponents of liberty span across every political divide. Because every politician knows that people are inclined toward wanting to be free. Wanting to have liberties protected. And in fact, the notion that our liberties would in some way be limited or constrained is anathema. I mean, that's, that's don't tread on me, revolutionary war kind of talk, right? Don't, don't limit my liberties. I, I, we, you know, people bled and died for these things. 
So this whole subject, whether you look at it from a social political perspective or you look at it from a sort of fellowship and life in the body of Christ to scheduling play dates with people you haven't gotten together with before. I mean, it doesn't matter what venue you look at. This matter of liberty, of Christian liberty, is on the table for us to consider. It's a very important matter for believers to understand how to rightly think and then rightly act in these matters according to God's word and according to his redemptive power in us to conform us to the image of Christ. So look with me at chapter 8. We're going to read the entire chapter, but of course we're going to have to spend some time today in just producing some background uh, context for what we're going to be looking at over the next number of weeks. But just to get the whole chapter in our view, and it's a short chapter, it's 13 verses, let's read it together. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you, if, it, for anyone, if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died? Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest... I make my brother stumble. Now, you could probably already get an idea of where the Apostle Paul is going to go with this as it relates to a thoroughgoing Christian ethic pertaining to Christian liberty. But just to sort of unpack some of the background here and get it set in our minds as to what it is we're actually looking at so that we can then sort of extrapolate from that what appropriate implications and applications are for us. We need to understand a little bit about this food offered to idols issue that was prominent in Corinth, and it was leading to no shortage of confusion and questions amongst the Corinthians. And again, you note there that the first verse begins with now concerning, which is one of those indicators in the flow of this narrative, particularly beginning in chapter 7, verse 1, where it starts with now concerning the matters about which you wrote. This is another part of Paul's response. It is believed by many scholars to just be an additional response to questions that were brought to him in this letter about the things to which they wrote. 
This is another section of that letter that he is now responding to. So what you're seeing play out here, going all the way back to chapter 7, are questions and points of confusion and contention that were, that were substantive. I mean, they dealt with matters, as we've already talked about, as, as deep and profound as marriage and the nature of the marriage union and what to do if your spouse leaves and is it okay to remarry and what about if you've never been married? I mean, significant life decisions, significant stations in life that are being dealt with and, and struggling through with these Corinthians trying to understand what godliness looks like. What true salvation being worked out in these various areas needs to look like. And so now he comes to this next section. And again, you're getting a window into what's actually taking place amongst these believers in the local church in Corinth. They're having trouble in this area. And you can easily see how this could become a significant point of division for people in the life of the church. We already know as we go back to earlier chapters that divisiveness in the life of the church was sort of the principal hallmark. That's where the Apostle Paul started in chapter 1. So these matters we see playing out only lend themselves to more reasons for them to be divided, for them to be at odds with one another. And so, as we think about ourselves and life in the church here, or if you can think about times in your own personal experience where maybe you've been a part of another church, if division ensues and becomes the hallmark of a church, that church is rendered completely ineffective. Completely ineffective. In other words, it is no longer functioning as a church, fulfilling the Great Commission and fulfilling what God has called them to as being salt and light in the community. So it's a major, major problem when believers in a local church become characterized by dissension and division. It's not just that it's unsettling, unenjoyable, anxiety-producing, burdensome for the people involved. It's that the light grows dim. The light grows dim, and the church is rendered unuseful. So it's important for us to to understand what's in play here in this chapter and even understand the background so that we can properly extrapolate and apply what's going on here to our current setting in our current environment. So this matter of food offered to idols is the issue, obviously. It's the first thing that you see there. And this term is actually one word in the Greek. This, This food offered to idols is one Greek word which can be translated, as it is here, food offered to idols. It can also be translated things offered unto idols or meat sacrificed to idols. It's used nine times in the New Testament, five of which are used right here in this section, most of them here in chapter 8, and then I think one other time in chapter 10. That's the five. And then it's used four other times in other places in Scripture that we'll get to in just a moment. In every case that it's used, though, it's, it's used to sort of succinctly characterize a practice that provoked division and or proved to be a stumbling block for some believers and potentially sort of led them into other sinful practices. 
So just think of this food sacrifice to idols issue as a, a contentious issue that, that led people down a path toward sinful, unfruitful living in the life of the church. That's, that's the nature of this term and how it's used in the New Testament. So you have these, these five uses right here in this section, uh, starting in chapter 8 and then moving ahead into chapter 10 once we get there, that, that last one. And then the other four you find in other places in Scripture. One prominent location, though, is in Acts chapter 15. And I want to review that for just a moment to kind of set the stage for, for where this, this idea or this practice, this terminology and what it means, food sacrificed to idols or food offered to idols, what it means in a New Testament context. In Acts chapter 15, you have that famous, what's called the Jerusalem Council. I mean, they didn't actually, you know, have banners and put up signs and say, you know, hear ye, hear ye, we're starting the Jerusalem Council. But that's what it's been, become known as because it was the council of elders and leaders in the church, the apostles that gathered together in Jerusalem to deal with matters of contention as the New Testament church was really expanding. Paul and Barnabas had been on a missionary journey the doctrines, uh, the new covenant doctrines were being taught and solidified. Disciples were being made and being taught the things, the, the teachings of the apostles, as Acts chapter 2 talks about. They gathered for prayer and for fellowship and, and studying and listening to the apostles' teaching. So all of these things were sort of forming and in real time, establishing the doctrines of the church and the, the understandings of of worship and church practice and the bringing together of people from disparate backgrounds and religions and Jew and Gentile under the banner of Christ. I mean, a lot is going on here. And so you arrive here in Acts chapter 15 where you've got newly converted Jewish believers who are teaching Gentiles that they must add to their faith circumcision and strict adherence to the Mosaic law. So, Yes, we're on board. We, we, we embrace Jesus as Messiah, but salvation is encompassed also by Judaistic practice, circumcision and adherence to the Mosaic law. And so if you're a Gentile and you come to faith in Christ, this additional religious burden was being added to them from Jewish, apparently Jewish believers, some who probably weren't, but, but some who probably legitimately were Jewish believers, but were still sorting a lot of this stuff out. And so, and the reason why I say that is because they're having a council to sort it out. This is what the whole point of the Jerusalem Council was, to sort this thing out. So you have there in, in Acts chapter 15, bringing to the table this particular issue. And in verse 7, it says, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up. Peter, the preacher of Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, Peter, leader of the church in Jerusalem, Peter, the, the sort of point person of the apostles in terms of the mouthpiece, the, the most vocal, the most upfront guy, he stands up. And he begins to give testimony of how the Spirit came upon Gentiles when he went and visited them and shared with them the message of Christ, which is testimony to the fact that the Lord is saving Gentiles. And he is 
bringing His Spirit upon them in the same way He did with us. There's no difference in what's happened here. It was a powerful testimony from his personal experience of this this working of the Lord and his witness to the Gentiles in Cornelius' home. Then in verse 12, Paul and Barnabas add to Peter's testimony, describing the saving work amongst the Gentiles. So they'd been out on the front lines in all these Gentile regions in the Roman Empire, and they had seen salvation come to the Gentiles in massive form and even in the, in, the, in the manifestation of signs and wonders to authenticate their message and their authority as, as God's apostles, as Christ's ambassadors, bringing this message of salvation in Christ. So they're listening to this testimony, and it's, it, says that, it says that they fell silent as they were listening to this. And then in verse 13, James, the brother of Jesus begins to speak. And he quotes from the Old Testament prophets that speak specifically of salvation to the Gentiles. So you have this overwhelming flood of truth and testimony that's, that's moving these apostles in this direction to solidify what is New Covenant doctrine regarding salvation and the relationship of salvation in Christ alone and the law. And then James, in verses 19 to 21, says this, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them, abstain from things polluted by idols. Same term. And from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city... Those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So here you have at the very dawn of the New Testament church, this council to sort of sort out this doctrinal dispute. And one of the the things that they are going to present and begin teaching to new Gentile believers is that they abstain from things polluted by idols. So in its early inception of New Testament teaching, New Covenant teaching, particularly amongst the Gentiles, they go after this whole matter of idolatrous worship and anything associated with that practice, to just abstain from it. But notice in this particular context, this is all about removing unnecessary provocation to Jewish believers. That's what this is about. That's why he says... From ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. When you look at the missionary journeys of Paul chronicled in the, in, in the book of Acts, what, what is his practice when he goes into these pagan Gentile cities but to go first to the synagogue and bring the message to the Jews that are there? And then most of the time he gets rejected and put out and even possibly beaten in some way. But then he goes and takes his message to the Gentiles. This is what, this is what James is referring to here. That, that there is this practice that he's calling even these young Gentile converts to that is all oriented around them not doing anything that would unnecessarily provoke their fellow new Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. Like this initial point of discipleship very early on and they're working out of this newfound salvation in Christ 
is don't do this thing, abstain from this thing, because it will provoke your, your Jewish brothers and sisters. It will create division in the life of the church. That's a profound note. I mean, you would, you, you would think, in our, you know, I think the natural inclination, at least for me, is to think that really it's the Jewish believers that have the Torah. They have the Old Testament law. They have the oracles of God. They have the prophets that foretold of Messiah. Like, they have all the background. And yet, in this particular instruction, in this particular laying down of new covenant doctrine, they're the ones that are needing to be protected in their conscience from being easily provoked to sin. It's fascinating. Then you get to Revelation chapter 2. You see another use of this food sacrifice to idols term. In Revelation chapter 2, you have probably well-known to many of you, this, these letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor that, that Jesus dictates to the Apostle John. He says, write, and John has to start writing. So, to the church at Pergamum, Pergamum, excuse me, Pergamum in verses 12 to 17, you have this reference in verse 14 of, of Revelation chapter 2. You know, the, the nature of those letters, it begins with commendations where where Christ is commending the church for certain things that they're doing right and doing well. And then he goes to uh, laying down things that he has against them, things that they're uh, condemnations, you would say. Commendations followed by condemnations. So in verse 14, you have this beginning of Christ's condemnation of the church at Pergamum. In verse 14, it says, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. And then again, to the church at Thyatira, in verses 18 through 29, you have that whole teaching there to them. But in verse 20, you have this condemnation to the church at Thyatira. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So the same condemnation to both of these churches. And so what you have in play here is this toleration of God's people, of churches, of professing believers, toleration of pagan practices, but also note that the toleration of the pagan practice of partaking of food sacrificed to idols leads to or is associated with this other sin of sexual immorality, which is the very thing that in Acts 15 they were called to abstain from. So the whole, the whole issue here, the whole matter here, is that this is not just a, a sort of isolated practice that you could then turn into a legalistic requirement in and of itself. Here's how that would work out. Okay, I get it now. I'm a vegan. I will no longer eat any meat, so therefore I will no longer eat food sacrificed to idols. So yay me, me and God are good. The the understanding of even the use of this terminology in the New Testament blows that completely up. This is about a, a particular contextual matter that was a reality in that day and time in the ancient world, and in these 
cultures and societies that were replete with idolatry, polytheism, and all forms of pagan worship that involved sacrifices and involved this practice that I'll kind of outline here in just a moment. But in that setting, it's this particular practice, but the point that gets raised as a result of it is, don't do anything to provoke your brother to further matters of sinfulness. To attach themselves to other things that will lead them into sin. That's a whole different matter to consider. And I think that if we are honest with ourselves, we have a proclivity toward, we'll call it legalism light, just to be nice. Isn't it that way that we, we, we just want to know what to do? Can, can you just give me the list and I'll do this and I won't do that? But what that turns into is it turns into our flesh applauding our adherence to the list. And we become prideful and we become far too narrow in our obedience metrics. And they aren't in reference to anyone else but us. And so we're not concerned or mindful of what our quote-unquote obedience might even be doing in leading others to have a provoked conscience, which then weakens them further and makes them vulnerable to other temptations so that they find themselves in other areas of sin and breaking fellowship with their Savior. It's much bigger than just morsels of meat. And that's where the Apostle Paul is going to take us without uh, any equivocation. So let's talk about the practice. That's sort, of the, that's sort of the term that he uses, this term, food sacrifice to idols. And that's kind of how it plays out in all of its uses in the New Testament. Let's talk about the practice in particular. So as we said, and as we've talked about, as we've done other background work and looked at this, this letter uh, for some time now, we all know that Corinth was steeped in pagan polytheism. I mean, it was rampant. Multiple temples of worship there. Uh, mystery religions were, were rampant in that area, in that, that part of the world at that time. And most of the newly converted Christians who made up this Corinthian church were likely Gentiles. There were some Jewish Christians there, certainly, but most were likely Gentiles. And so, therefore, because of the nature of the culture and the ubiquitous idol worship and idol, idolatrous practices, and it was, just, it was just part of the culture. It was embedded into sort of cultural life, civic life, social life in the culture. Then you have all these new Gentile converts in this church mixed in with some Jews. They were deeply influenced by these practices. Deeply influenced. I go back to this, this simple, somewhat silly illustration of wearing pants to church as a, as, a, as a female. Depending upon how steeped you are in a particular cultural pattern and a, a sort of a sense of cultural norms, and how long you were sort of steeped in that kind of thinking and that kind of acceptance and practice, whether it was rooted in good reasons at that particular time when it started or not, it doesn't really matter. If you were, if you were really deeply rooted in that, then it's a part of you. 
And you can be easily provoked and easily influenced and easily swayed one way or another by one simple exposure to some woman wearing pants, of all things. Again, silly kind of outdated illustration, but I think you get the point. So that's, that's, that's what's going on here in Corinth. I mean, that's what they're dealing with. So when we talk about food sacrifice to idols, we're like, well, what is that all about? Well, it's about that. It's about pants in church. I mean, it's, it's a similar kind of situation. We've got to think about it in that kind of cultural setting, that kind of cultural context, and that kind of cultural impact. They were deeply influenced by all of these practices and rituals of pagan worship, and it was a social, a social practice as well. John MacArthur, in his commentary, sort of describes it this way. He says, they had a god or a group of gods for every circumstance, every need, and every activity of any consequence. They had a god of war, a goddess of love, a god of travel, a goddess of justice, and on and on and on. They were also polydemonistic. So this adds a whole other flair to this. So not only were they polytheistic, but they were polydemonistic, believing in many evil spirits. They believed the air was filled with evil spirits of all sorts. Giving food sacrifices, which were usually meat, was of great importance in regard to both of these beliefs. It was believed that the evil spirits were constantly trying to invade human beings and that the easiest way to do that was to attach themselves to food before it was eaten. The only way the spirits could be removed from food was through its being sacrificed to a god. The sacrifice, therefore, served two purposes. It gained the favor of the god, and it cleansed the meat from demonic contamination. And this, they didn't know any better. This is what they believed. I mean, so you might be in an environment, and I'm not going to try to unpack this at all, but you might be in an environment where you know, burnt food is sort of the common thing. You become accustomed to it. But burnt meat in this particular, and I, again, I'm not looking at anybody. I'm not making eye contact. <laughs> but burnt meat was like religious. It was, it was necessary. And they had this belief that it needed to be cleansed of these demonic spirits that could settle on the food and make its way into them and possess them. So you can imagine that something as simple as having a feast where there was, you know, some beast that was sacrificed and then the, the, the meat was separated out and it was you know, going to be at some meal somewhere, some banquet or whatever. This had more to do with that than it had to do with just where the food came from. It, it, it attached itself to their, their previous thinking about these matters. It's difficult for them to kind of think through it carefully for some of them. The process of this was pretty straightforward. It usually was three portions of, of this meat, this food. A small portion would be used in the sacrificial ritual itself. A larger portion would be reserved for the use of the priests or the other temple personnel. And then the largest portion would be retained by the worshiper to be used in one of two ways. This is how it becomes a very social thing. According to the Holman uh, Dictionary, it says, the one who offered the sacrifice sometimes used the remaining portion as the main course in a meal that might be served at or near the pagan temple. It is this type of religio-social event that stands behind the question raised in this section in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. The other 
use of this largest portion that was retained by the, the worshiper was it was, a, it was a method of disposing of the worshiper's portion, or excuse me, the second method of disposing of the worshiper's portion would be to offer it for sale at the local marketplace. Meat that was sold in this fashion would be brought and then ser- would be bought and then served as part of a regular family meal. And this is the situation that is reflected in Paul's comments in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 23 through 11, 1. So whether it is meat sacrificed to idols as a result of one's personal worship that then leads to some kind of feast as a result of you know, the, the religio-cultural atmosphere of the day, or whether it's just you went to the market to buy meat, you could be buying and purchasing and eating meat as just part of the normal course of social life in that day and time that was sacrificed to idols. Again, MacArthur says, it was almost impossible for a believer who had any personal contact with Gentiles to avoid facing the question of eating idol sacrifices. Most social occasions, including weddings, involved pagan worship of some sort, and a great many of the festivities were held in temples. Idol food was always served. If a relative was getting married or a longtime friend was giving a banquet, a Christian either had to make excuses for not attending, which he could not do indefinitely, or he had to eat food that he knew had been part of an idol offering. So these believers were in a real, substantial dilemma, a spiritual crisis of sorts for many of them, that they're trying to figure out, what do I do? Remember, not everybody in their family was getting saved. Not everybody in their circle of friends were becoming believers and a part of this church. They were still a part of this pagan society. They still had connections and work associates and family members. So the social dynamic was placing before them this constant conflict. What do I do about this? A crisis of conscience they were dealing with. Now I know that I began by talking about something silly in terms of the whole pants thing, but but if you just think for a moment, we, we could be walking into periods of time where we're facing similar challenges as believers and as a church in terms of how we will navigate things that have impacted someone significantly. And now they're seeking to walk a life of faith in Christ, a newfound faith in Christ. I just will put out there for your contemplation, and I'm not going to say anything more about this because I haven't, I haven't personally thought about it enough to feel comfortable saying more, but just, just consider the transgender movement and the trajectory that that is on and the possible work of God in saving souls out of that movement. What does that look like in the life of the church? What kind of provocation might we have to deal with on a social level because of what we're accustomed to? There's something to think about. I just don't want this to stay in this realm of silly differences or easy-to-navigate differences because that's not what it was in first century Corinth. It was ubiquitous. It was an assault to their conscience, Many of them, it was in their face all the time. It was impossible to avoid. And yet the Apostle Paul is going to give them instruction for how to walk faithfully in the midst of all of this and to actually be the church 
in this kind of environment. Now, it's interesting where he goes, and this is where we're going to spend our time next week, but just to kind of introduce a little bit of this. You'll notice where he goes there in the first verse, through the third verse, really. He starts by saying, now, concerning food offered to idols, and then he, then he goes into what looks like a little bit of a digression. Because immediately there in verse 4, he picks it back up. Therefore, as to eating food offered to idols. So there's this little interlude that is the beginning of this instruction. But let's just look at it briefly for a moment, and then we'll dive more deeply into it. He says, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now, you might note, how many of you have a version that has several of those phrases in quotation marks? If you have the ESV, it certainly does. In the ESV, it says, we know that all of us possess, excuse me, we know that, quote, all of us possess knowledge, end quote, and that this, quote, knowledge, end quote, puffs up, but love builds up. It is believed by many that this is part of the slogans that were being bantered about by the Corinthians that were leading them to handle this kind of situation in the life of the church in entirely unfruitful and ungodly ways. It centers around this matter of a type of knowledge, or I would say rather a manifestation of a type of knowledge that was not according to love. That's, the, that's sort of the baseline principle here. And we know that this is characteristic of the Corinthians. You go all the way back through chapters we've already looked at. They struggled with confusing their man-made, man-centered, man-produced knowledge and wisdom with the actual wisdom and knowledge of God. And it manifested itself in all kinds of ungodly ways. But the Apostle Paul sort of crystallizes it in this succinct and very insightful and powerful way in this passage. So he says, yes, we all possess this knowledge. And he's going to elaborate on the knowledge a few verses later. So there's, there's a sense of an agreement that, yes, we all possess this sort of knowledge that has to do with that there is just one God. In other words, these idols are not gods. Why get worked up over the idols and the food sacrificed to them? They're not God. There is only one God. We all know this, is what he's saying. In a sense, he's certainly agreeing with them because he's going to elaborate on it in just a few minutes. But he says, this knowledge puffs up. So there's, there's a rebuke for the manifestation, the way this kind of knowledge is manifesting itself in the life of the church. And it leads to arrogance. It leads to pride. It leads to an inflated view of oneself and therefore a condescending view toward others. It leads to one using knowledge to step over people rather than to love them. And it uses knowledge to persist in false notions of Christian liberty rather than walking in humility and in consideration of your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. It's the kind of knowledge that puffs up. Now, just just to be clear... The Apostle Paul is not speaking of knowledge in general. We know that because 
throughout the, the letter all the way up to this point and even beyond, he speaks of the importance of knowledge over and over again. In fact, he uses a little bit of like sarcastic cutting questions to sort of point out, you should know these things. Do you not know these things? Chapter 3, verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If you don't, you should know this, is the implication. Chapter 5, verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? In chapter 6, there's several references in verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge, judge the world? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? Chapter 9, do you not know that those who are employed with the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offering? Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? This is not some you know, slam against people having knowledge. I mean, think about what we're doing right here, like right now at this moment. And then you're going to go in there and you're going to do it all over again with someone else doing a similar kind of thing. There are many, many things in Scripture that we need to know. Many, many things that we need to know deeply. The Apostle Apostle Paul has numerous prayers in the epistles where the core of his prayer is that the people would know certain things about their salvation in Christ and know it deeply and profoundly. But there's something unique about this knowledge that's being manifest in the life of Corinth. And it is not something that he's affirming. It's a kind of knowledge that he is rebuffing, he's rebuking because it puffs up. But then notice what he says. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. This is the quintessential statement about the nature of true wisdom and true knowledge. The person who is growing in knowledge is growing in their knowledge, their conscious knowledge of all that they don't know. That is at the very essence of Christian maturity, of genuine spiritual maturity in Christ that produces wise living. It's characterized by the kind of knowledge that doesn't reflect back on the person who's doing the knowing. If anyone imagines, if anyone thinks into himself that he knows something, begins to reflect on all that he knows now, is kind of the idea. Think of such a thing. Then he does not know yet as he ought to know. If you go to Proverbs, what is sort of the quintessential proverbial statement about knowledge and wisdom? What, what is the foundation of it? The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What happens to a soul and a man or a woman who has, in, has encountered the living God to the extent that they now carry with them a very healthy, sustained, persistent fear of Him? What has happened in that moment? You have come face to face with the all-knowing, all-sufficient, 
all-powerful God whose knowledge encompasses all eternity. And your smallness and your lack of knowledge is on bold display. And that's the beginning of knowledge. That's the beginning of wisdom. So when we step into these sticky, wicked issues, these difficult-to-navigate preference issues and gray areas that can provoke the conscience of another brother or sister, that could even provoke a weak conscience brother or sister, leave them more vulnerable at a future time so that when temptation comes, in their weakened state, they're led to further sin. Like, that could be a consequence of our inadequate handling of these kinds of situations. If we, if we recognize the significance of this kind of, this kind of challenge and being able to navigate it, we will understand that we need to have wisdom. We need to have true wisdom that is foundationally characterized by a conscious awareness of what we don't know that leads to a dependence upon the one that he says knows us. That's what he says. He says he does not know He does not yet know as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. This characteristic of coming face to face with the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-sufficient, all-wise living God that brings us low, sort of the Isaiah 6 picture, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. And then the response is, who shall I send and who will go for us? And he's like, here am I. Send me. This motivation of love for God that spews out in love for the brothers and sisters. I'll go. I'll take this message to them. I know that prophets are hated, but I'll go. You have filled me with love because you have known me. It is not about what I know. It's about who knows me. Who has called me? Who has called you to himself? And we walk in that knowledge of God, his knowledge of us, that produces love for the brothers. So that you can get to where the Apostle Paul gets to at the end of this chapter. If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat. That's not the confession of a legalist. That's a confession of one who loves his brothers and sisters in the Lord. And we'll unpack all of this in the weeks ahead as we look at how to be faithful in holding one another up, even in situations where consciences are weak and provoked by preference issues and matters of Christian liberty. Let's pray together.